friends, truth seekers, truth speakers, welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me for what I am calling officially episode one of this new podcast, this new adventure, this new journey podcast we're calling Twice the Lutheran. I'm your host, Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's because I'm, you guessed it, twice the Lutheran. And you can be too. In a world with fewer Christians and fewer Lutherans, we say, oh, we will not go quietly into that good night. We will double down. We will become twice the Lutheran. Thank you for joining us for this journey You have come to a place where you can ask your questions, and I hope you do as we have a discussion about God's Word. Now, that's kind of hard to do over a podcast because by definition, how a podcast works, I talk, you listen, but I want to give you the chance to talk to me too. So you can do that by sending me an email at a brand new email address I created just for you, just for you. So if you don't use it, no one will. So do me a favor. Reach out to me and say hi. Share your comments and questions and concerns. You can do that at podcast at twicethelutheran.org. That's the email, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. You can just send me an email that says hi. That'd be cool. We're ready to begin our journey, our journey together, looking for truth. We're going to do that in God's Word on the basis of Luther's small catechism. That's what we're going to be reading through. That's what we're going to do. Probably more than any other work in the Book of Concord, as mentioned before, the small catechism shapes our Lutheran heritage, it shapes our Lutheran culture. Because if you had been confirmed in the past in the Lutheran Church, the Wisconsin Synod, I'm going to say it that way because that's the only one I can speak for, the Wisconsin Synod, then you've spent a considerable amount of time in Luther's small catechism. Maybe you remember those days, maybe you don't. And if you don't, or even if you do, you've come to the right place to refresh your memory. Now, you might be wondering... What is a catechism? Ah, your inquisitive minds, again, at the right place. My fellow inquisitive minders, mindfulness, mind people. A catechism is unique because a catechism teaches in the form of questions and answers. So that's what the catechism does. Now, I'm reading from the newest blue catechism published by Northwestern Publishing House. You can get one, nph.net, nph.net, well worth the investment. This is, uh, the one I'm reading from is the ESV. So all the Bible passages are going to be printed in the English Standard Version. There, I think, is one that has the EHV, Evangelical Heritage Version, and to be honest, I kind of prefer that one, but this is the one I have in front of me. If I switch to the EHV, I'll let you know. But I'm ready to begin, and I hope you are too, a discussion on the, about the truth of God's Word on the basis of Luther's small catechism. 
As I mentioned before, the Catechism simply asks you a question, gives you Bible verses to lead you to the answer to that question. And a good discussion on God's truth in the Bible begins where that discussion ought to begin, with a discussion about the Bible itself. But before we even dive into the Bible itself, we need to talk about God himself, theology you know, in the broad sense. The Catechism asks us this question. Why should it be clear to everyone that there is a God? Maybe you've heard this Bible passage before. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Those, that's strong language. That's almost even offensive language. The Bible says that the person who denies God is a fool. Well, why does it call that person a fool? Because God's existence is as plain as the nose on my face. And believe you me, the nose on my face is mighty plain. (laughs) German heritage, shout out. So here's the Bible passage. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That's Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. See, there's a sermon going on around you 24-7. The question is, do you hear it? Creation, the heavens, and the sky, they are proclaiming God's handiwork and God's glory. It's happening all the time, 24-7, just for you. It's easy to forget about that sermon. It's e- it's hard to hear it sometimes because life gets busy and the day gets noisy. Life just gets noisy. Boy, is life noisy. I, I'm saying that as a, a dad with four kids at home. Yes, life gets noisy. But try this sometime, especially if you live in a small town or maybe you live out in the country. Go outside on your front porch or in your backyard at 2 in the morning when the world is sleeping, but creation isn't. That's the time when you can hear that sermon most clearly. Even at 2 o'clock in the morning, you can hear some of those birds chirping, perhaps, crickets or bullfrogs groaning and singing their song, bugs buzzing. It is a sermon. Night to night, it's revealing Knowledge. See, that's what sermons do, of course. Sermons teach you. Sermons reveal knowledge. So it should be obvious to everyone that there's a God because you look around at creation and you say, where do you think it came from? And the atheistic evolutionist will say, well, evolution, of course, this developed over millions and billions of years, to which I just simply say, really? Really? Since when has order ever come from chaos? But what if, let me just put it that way, but what if, what if it didn't? What if creation not only was created by God, but what if creation was 24-7 telling you about God? Because that's what it's doing. 
Now, what can you learn about God from the things that he created? That's the natural next question. That's the question that the catechisms ask you, asks you next. What do you learn about God from that sermon? Romans 1.20 says his invisible attributes, the things about him, about God, that you can't see. And what are those? It says, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How about that? The invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Look around. And now here, here is a, a law statement at the end of Romans one twenty. Here's how it ends. So that they are without excuse. Oh, that sort of implies that there's an accountability to God someday. But you're going to have to give reasons and answers. And Romans one twenty says, well, you might not believe in God, but you'll stand before him someday. And you're not going to have an excuse. Why? Because creation itself was teaching you about God, and it was teaching you, namely, it says, about his eternal power and divine nature. Because you can't look at creation without considering the creator. And when you consider the creator through the creation that surrounds you, you come to a couple of conclusions. Not only must God exist, but if if all of this around me was created by him, boy, then he must be powerful. Who do you think is feeding all those animals and bugs every day, all the time? Yeah, he must be powerful. And he must be eternal if he is making this and sustaining it. His eternal power is divine nature clearly perceived. So that is one of the proofs of God. You can know that there is a God because of the things around you. But there's another way that you can know God, that, that God exists rather. You can know that God exists because of your conscience. The voice of our conscience, the catechism says, also proves that God exists. So how does that happen? How does the conscience within each of us testify to the truth that there is a God? So creation's telling me on the outside, but then the conscience that's in me is telling me on the inside that God exists. Here's a really uh, quite astonishing uh, Bible verse, again from Romans, this time from Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15. When Gentiles, so don't forget that in the Bible, the whole world is really divided into two groups, the Jews and everybody else. (laughs) That's your two groups. So the Jews and then everybody else, and everybody else is called the Gentiles. When Gentiles, Paul says in Romans, who do not have the law. That really was the thing that separated Jews from Gentiles and that made them very different from each other. The Jews had the law of God. They had it written down. They had the Bible, and the Gentiles didn't. So when Gentiles, who don't have the law, they don't have God's law, but by nature, they do the things the law requires. Well, how does that happen? How do the Gentiles, who don't have God's natural law, how do they live according to it? Paul says they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
And that very behavior, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So their thoughts go back and forth. Sometimes I feel not guilty when maybe I should feel guilty, and sometimes I don't feel guilty when I should feel guilty. So they've got a knowledge of God. They've got a knowledge of his law, but it's, but it's imperfect. So you can, you can prove this pretty easily, right? Uh, is it okay to steal? Every society ever, <laughs> basically, has said no. It's not okay to steal. How do we know that? How do we know by nature it's not okay to steal? That's your conscience. God's law is naturally known to a certain extent by everybody. You know that it's not okay to walk down the street and punch somebody in the tooth. You can't do that. (laughs) We all know that. It is proof of your conscience. But we don't have a perfect knowledge of that law. Is it okay to steal? No. But what if I'm starving to death? Can I steal some food? Well, there you might get some different answers. So how can you know? Well, God's written law will teach you the answer to that question. And yet it is standing proof, is it not, that we have a natural knowledge of God's law. Which then begs the question, because don't forget, we're having a conversation right now on the Bible. It brings the question then, why do we still need the Bible? If I can know about God from nature, and if I can know about God from my conscience, even though I might not know him perfectly from my conscience, then why do I need the Bible? What does the Bible do for me? Well, Romans 10, 14. We're sticking with Romans. Why not? Let's stick with Romans. Good book. How then, Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone preaching? How can you have faith without a preacher? Well, we just said, of course, how can you, how can they call on him who you haven't believed in or haven't heard about? Well, didn't we just say you could know God from nature and from your conscience? So isn't that the answer? I can call on him because he is who I find him to be. By the way, I had somebody tell me that once. <laughs> I was talking with a coworker. This would have been, oh goodness, lots of years ago, 10 plus years ago. In casual conversation, as one does when it is boring, at work, I asked him, "What do you? Who is God?" And his answer, I kid you not, was, "God is whatever I think Him to be." Really? Doesn't that mean you're God? Then you are God. <laughs> if you could just make up your own God, doesn't that make you God? You're more powerful than Him, after all. So is that really true? Is God? Whoever I think he is, whatever I think about him is what he is. Well, no. Not according to the Bible. How can you believe in him who you've ne- whom you've never heard? See, God is real. 
And there are things that you need to know about him. But you can't get all the information you need to know from nature and you can't get all the things you need to know from your conscience. God has to tell you about himself. He also, by the way, tells you about yourself. But he tells you about himself. And this is part of his grace to you. This is part of his mercy because he didn't have to talk to you at all. (laughs) He didn't have to talk to me. But he did. He condescended. That's the word we use. He condescended to speak to us in the Bible. And I know the word condescension has a negative meaning today, but he came down to our level so that we could apprehend him in words that we understood and we understand. So there are some things that you need to know about God that you cannot get from nature or from your conscience. And what are those things in particular? Well, the Bible tells us about our relationship to God and how it was spoiled. Let's stick with Romans. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God exists. Nature tells me that. I'm accountable to God. I will have to answer to him someday. Even my conscience tells me that. So I better have a relationship with him before the day of me having to answer for things comes. So how's my relationship with God? How am I supposed to know what that relationship is like or what it's even supposed to look like? Again, God in his mercy answers that question in the Bible. He tells you. He tells you what's spoiled your relationship with him and my relationship with him. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible has a lot of word pictures. In this case, the word for sin has the picture of you're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss the bullseye and you were supposed to hit it. That's what sin is. You didn't live according to what God wanted you to do. And so what's the result then? What's the result of your sin? Romans again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That was the curse, as we will read later. The curse to Adam and Eve, those first sinners, from whom we receive our sinful nature. It's a hereditary disease. Now, what's the result of those sins? Where do they come from? This time we're going to switch over to Mark. This is a just a wild passage. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's terrifying. First of all, it's terrifying that long list of sins because I see myself in in those sins. But what's even more terrifying is where it comes from. You often hear the advice nowadays, right? Follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. Well, Mark says from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And you're accountable to God for those. Sexual immorality, you're accountable to God for that. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, witness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and you're accountable to God for that. Those are real sins that really condemn. They separate you from God, and by the way, they separate you from other people. So you want to talk about one of the real world results of your sin. Look at your relationships. How are they going? (laughs) Do you get along? Do you get along with your parents? Do you get along with your neighbors? Do you get along with your spouse? And if not, why not? And before you point the finger at them, remember what Mark said, the evangelist. These things come from within you. Now, that, that might be true. The other person might be guilty of something too, and we won't, we won't want to overlook that or breeze past it. But let's not breeze past, first and foremost, the Word of God. This is the law, and we'll talk about law and gospel coming up. The law of God looks at me first and points the finger at me first and says, you, you've done it. You've messed up the relationships. Because from your heart has come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So what's the answer to that? Is that the end of our story? We've messed up our relationships so bad there's no healing them. Our sins have separated us from God, and that's it. We live in despair and die and go to hell. Because you can't get the answer to that problem, the problem of your sin. You can't get that answer from nature. At 2 o'clock in the morning, no cricket is going to give you the answer. No bug, no frog. And no matter what time of day, you cannot mine your conscience deep enough to come up with the answer to that problem of sin. So thank you, God, that you have given us the Bible. Because, and here's question number seven from the Catechism. What does God tell me in his word that brings peace to my relationship with him? Ah, Here's what you can't know apart from the Bible. Earlier I quoted Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's only the first part of that passage. Here's the second part. The wages of sin is death, but, a big adversative here, (laughs) but, however, not the end of the story, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, how did that happen? What even does that mean? The Catechism gives us another verse. And this is a famous verse. You've probably seen this one even at ball games or whatever. John 3.16 on the side, uh, on, the, on the sign in the stands at the ball game. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the answer. Let me give you one more because this is just so pivotal. This is the life-changing news. This is the relationship-fixing news. One more passage, Isaiah 43, 25. Here's God speaking. I, I am he who blots 
out, gets rid of your transgressions, those sins. And why? I get them for I get rid of them for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. God has forgiven you in Jesus. That long list of sins from Mark. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, on and on and on. No matter what it is, no matter where you see yourself in that list, God has forgiven you in the blood of Jesus. That's why you need the Bible. Because you can't know that apart from God's word in the Bible. This is the truth of our reality. We are born into the world as sinful people by nature, but God in his love for us sent his son Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross and blotted out our transgression. So can you trust that? Can you trust the message of the Bible? Peter, another, another writer in the Bible, Second Peter, says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what you have in the Bible, right? Eyewitness accounts. I mean, we still use eyewitness accounts even today. If a jury or a court wants to have a hearing and figure out what happened, You don't just grab anybody and ask them. You grab the people that were there. And you say, now, so-and-so, what happened? Give us the eyewitness account. Peter says, that's what we wrote down. We wrote down the eyewitness accounts. But then you might be saying, well, hold on a minute. So just because some guy said he was there and wrote the thing down, that's really why? And besides, not only do, do how do I know I can trust that guy, how do I know that he got his story straight? I mean, if you've ever asked anybody to recount their uh, memories of an event, it can be different from day to day. They remember different things and different details, and maybe they even remember things that never actually happened. Is that what we got going on here? How can the words of the Bible be God's word if human writers wrote them? Well... John 14, 6 says this, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, this is, John, uh, this is Jesus rather speaking, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Ah, so are these really just guys writing the Bible? Not just men. Again, Peter, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. They didn't make it up. It wasn't even their desire to write the Bible. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, as he promised, brought to memory everything that Jesus said, everything that he did. He, and he brought it to memory for those, for those men, the apostles, who wrote it down. Which means, by the way, and we'll get to this later, which means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most provable event in human history. Because every eyewitness that was there said it happened. That's what makes it so provable. So can you trust the words of the Bible if human writers wrote them? Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Because God, the Holy Spirit, guided them along so that they wouldn't write down any, any lies. They wouldn't get anything wrong, not even one detail. 
That was God's promise. That That's why you need the Bible. And finally, question number 10 here. So why is the Bible so important? Second Timothy, you might remember this one if you've been through catechism. From childhood, you've been acquainted with those sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Yeah, we, we often forget that. So many people and so many Christians and so many pastors will, will preach a sermon that gives you uh, the, the, the distinct impression that the Bible is here to make your life good, to make your life easier, to make you better than everybody else. But what did Timothy in the, say in the Bible itself? What's the goal? The Bible makes you wise for salvation. Because whether you have thought about it or not, or whether you talk about it or not, and maybe you do and maybe you don't, you're going to die. Your life is going to end. We will bury you six feet under one day. What are you going to do then? Because finally, all debate and all question end then. (laughs) So are you ready for that? Well, if you've got God's word, then the answer is obviously a resounding yes. I'm ready for that day. That's what we're here getting ready for because none of us will escape it unless Jesus comes back first. And again, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) So why is the Bible so important? Because you got to get ready to die, friend. Because that could happen at any moment. It could happen today. You don't know how much time you have left. But the Bible gets you ready for that grand final event, your death. And it does that by making you wise for salvation. There is something after this life. The Bible gets you ready for that so that you can enter into paradise These are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that life in his name, there's kind of a two-part, two sides to that coin. You get a new life now, and you get life eternal to come. And we'll develop that more too. That's what you get through the Bible. So if the message is that important, if the message is eternally important, then what does God forbid anyone to do with the Bible? Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word I commanded you, nor take from it. And Revelation 22, if anyone adds, uh, I, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the book of Revelation and the book of the Bible, the whole Bible. If anyone adds to them, adds to the words, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. Wow. Wow. Do you think that God protects his word? (laughs) Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Do you think God takes seriously his word? Yes, he does. We might mince words. We might like to paint with a broad brush. 
We might use our words to deceive and conceal, but God does not. God has spoken. His words convey meaning. And God wrote them down. And he does not want you messing with it or me messing with it. Now, I think that we oftentimes in our heads get this idea like, like somebody's going to sit down and, and rip pages out of the Bible. Ha ha, there. Or cross words out or cross letters out and, and, and craft the Bible. There are stories of that, by the way. That's happened. That's happened. Isn't, didn't one of our founding fathers do that? I think so. If you remember that story, if you, if you stumble across that story of a founding father who ripped pages out, I can't remember, email that to me. Fill me in. <laughs> God does not want his word changed. So we get this image that, that sometimes people will sit down and read, uh, rip out those pages or scratch out the words, but that really doesn't happen all that much, right? In fact, the, word, the way that people usually either add to or subtract from God's word is really in one of two ways. First of all, it is by listening to a lying preacher or a preacher who in good intentions or bad fails to preach the truth of God's word. Maybe, maybe through malice intent. Maybe through just lazy preparation. And they don't preach the truth of God's word. And so the word of God is effectively changed, is it not? Haven't you changed God's message if you don't preach the truth? If you don't preach the gospel? If you just ignore the gospel? Isn't that changing God's word? Isn't that high heresy that you will answer to God for? You bet it is. Yep, it is. And the other way that people effectively negate God's word, change God's word, is just by not listening to it, by just ignoring it. Boy, and that's happening all the time, huh? Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Listen. Listen to God through his word because he's speaking just to you to give you the hope of salvation, to get you ready for the day when you will stand before him in death, after death. You don't need to worry about that day. Get in the word of God. Friends, that is what the Bible, uh, the discussion in the catechism on the Bible uh, is ending right here. Uh, we'll continue a little bit in that same vein on the next episode. We're going to talk about uh, God's law before we get into the summary of God's law in the Ten Commandments. Let me let me whet your appetite. Uh, by the way, I learned I learned that it's not wet your appetite like W E T like make you drool. It is wet your ap- appetite. W H E T. Like sharpening a knife, whetting your appetite, sharpening your appetite. You know, you come here for the word of God and oh, you get so much more. I say that tongue-in-cheek, by the way, because it drives my associate, Pastor Bacchus, crazy. Shout out, Pastor Bacchus. Here's, here's me whetting your appetite 
A lot of people are convinced that Christianity is about rules. Rules. That if you follow the rules, you can get into heaven. Um, They're wrong. They are wrong. That is a misuse of God's law. So what's the proper role of God's law, God's rules? Well, we'll discuss that on the next episode. Is your appetite wet, 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 wetted? Wetted. Is that the past tense of, we'll go with wetted. Is your appetite wetted? Of course, you can't answer me because you're not here. I will consider your appetite having been made wet. We'll go with that. Thank you, friends, for your rapt attention. If you have questions for me or you feel like there was part of the discussion that was left out or you're wanting more information on something, again, email me. Let your voice be heard. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Again, thank you very much for your rapt attention. I will see you on the next episode of Twice the Lutheran.